survived okay. the apocalypse. We're all, we all we are here. We're, We're not here. on fire. Should we do this? Yeah. Welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined back in our old studio, which is really, really nice. It's like a nice room with soundproofing and stuff. Uh, <laughs> here with that, with Sarah Cliff and, and Dara Lind, we've got uh, some hot research about conscription in Norway. I don't know if you would technically consider this administrative data even. It's like it's an experiment. Yeah, it's, no, it's, it's a, a Norwegian field experiment. It is. It is yeah. not Norwegian, but it's still it's still great in its own right. It's solid data. It's good stuff. And, you know, it's a break from Sweden to shift over, shift over to Norway. I think we wanted to talk a little bit about James Comey, who has a book out. We, of course, have not read the book. Right. It's, it, who it, would? But you. But we've heard you, some things about the book, though. Because we are we are not as special as it appears. About half of DC, we did not get an advanced <laughs> copy. But the, it also appears from the people who have read the book that the book is not saying a ton that James Comey has not been saying in media interviews, of which he has been doing many, <laughs> many interviews. He also has, which is a bad book promotion strategy, as far as I'm concerned. Like you don't, you know, why buy the cow? Well, I think that people you build up the hype. Then you get the cow and then you get a little disappointed. I think that probably from a sheer promotional perspective, it's like you want to be out on the media, but he's probably gone a little bit too far. Anyway, so Comey is out. People are talking about James Comey, talking about the FBI, you know, sort of where he stands. And, you know, I mean, it's – I feel like there have been so many takes out there that are like James Comey is not the hero that everyone makes him out to be that I actually wonder, like, is anybody – making James Comey out to be a hero. I'm not totally sure that there are, that like between Republicans who hate him and Hillary Clinton fans who hate him and left-wing people who hate everyone associated with the FBI, that there's just like three people on the lawfare blog who like really think that that James Comey is, is truly a hero. And it almost makes me want to make like the counter case that like everybody, he made some decisions that I might disagree with, but that fundamentally the really, really, really important story here is that he was the director of the FBI. The president repeatedly tried to get him to improperly interfere in an ongoing criminal and counterintelligence investigation. He refused to do so. He got fired for his trouble and now is telling his important story, which is that the president of the United States is posing a dangerous and ongoing threat to the rule of law in the United States. So I do think you're kind of working at one level higher of like political information than maybe the people who are, you know, treating Comey as a resistance hero are. I do think that there is a tendency among a lot of people who either assertively want a popular front against Trump in which nobody asks any questions about who you were before the war um, or think that there's something particularly meaningful in figures of great gravity who've held public office making morally serious sounding statements about the president at the same time that there was, you know, buzz about Comey's interview with George Stephanopoulos in which he called, you know, Trump like morally unfit to be president. There was attention to a tweet from former Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates, in which 
she had said that if Trump fires Robert Mueller, that it will be like some kind of moral catastrophe. And Sally Yates obviously is not known for holding her tongue about the Trump administration. She's not even a Republican or a Republican appointee or any of that. There's nothing new in that kind of criticism. But there's still, I think, an appetite for hearing people who are important, who have been in Washington, say this is not normal. This is not the way that things are supposed to work. At this point, I think there's an open question about whether the hope is that it's going to actually build momentum to get Trump out of office, or if it's just a, oh, I'm glad I'm not crazy. I'm glad other people also think this is not normal. Like That's an open question, but I think that that's the right way to think about Comey's heroism or lack thereof is kind of his voice as a truth-telling crusader. I agree with you, though, that the much more important thing isn't what Comey is saying now. It's what he did almost a year ago at this point, especially given that in the intervening year, we've seen so few cases of high-profile Trump administration figures standing up to the administration and, you know, either getting fired for it or resigning in, in protest. And we have seen a bunch of cases of the Trump administration going after people within the FBI. You know, I think it's very difficult as much as Comey and Andrew McCabe had clearly professional differences and Comey appears to be very frustrated with McCabe. McCabe appeared to have lied to Comey. It's very difficult to talk about Comey and his role in the Trump administration without noticing that not only did they push out Comey, but they fired Andrew McCabe and stripped him of his pension. There appears to be a kind of Trump administration problem with the FBI that appears to be mutually shared. And I think that's where kind of the interesting story is here. But I think it's kind of interesting, like, to your point about Comey being this truth teller and like this like massive media tour we've been watching, I almost wonder if it's like undercutting him a little bit, where he feels like he is quickly becoming a more polarizing figure and a more kind of on one side figure than, you know, what I think you might think of someone from the FBI with the language he uses around Trump. I mean, I think it's kind of an interesting balance. And I'm curious, you know, one of the things Matt shared a chart with us earlier today, I think it was created by PBS NewsHour. I don't remember who did the polling, showing that you've seen this increase in distrust of the FBI over the past year or so about whether they are biased uh, against the Trump administration or just doing their job. It was the past couple of months. Oh, is it only? Okay. So it has been interesting and kind of a little surprising to me to watch the Comey book tour extravaganza and wonder kind of how that affects public opinion of like who this guy is, what this agency does. And if you are seeing like some of the shift that might be among those who are more inclined to trust the FBI. Unfortunately, this didn't have a partisan breakdown. I would have to suspect the people who are flipping towards the side of the FBI is biased against Trump are those who are likely Trump supporters, whereas those who think they're just doing their job as a agency are probably more likely Trump opponents. But it seems like Comey is going to play a role in now polarizing those views even further as he kind of like goes on book tour extravaganza and like does all these interviews and more and more people are buying his book. Yeah, I mean, I do think there are questions to be asked about Comey's marketing of himself and its its sort of utility in, in these kind of things. But I mean, I just I do want to reiterate that 
With the strain that Donald Trump is putting various individuals under, right, he puts forward a weekly basis, some kind of pressure on Jeff Sessions and or Rod Rosenstein to either quit their jobs or possibly get fired or do something to fire Robert Mueller or something. I mean, I don't know exactly what Trump's desired endgame is here, but he's constantly leaning on the top two officials at the Department of Justice and implicitly on Noel Francisco who sits behind them in the line of succession to improperly interfere with this investigation. That is what he did to Comey previously. Comey did not give in to him on that point. Comey got fired. It is conceivable that in the future, some of Rosenstein, Sessions, Mueller, Francisco will get fired. And I think it would be really bad, like really bad for America if the day after something like that happens, what we all engage in is a 360-degree view assessment of the just-fired person's career, right? Like, I think it is so obvious that Jeff Sessions is not a progressive hashtag resistance hero that, like, it's, the argument scarcely needs to be made. The fact of the matter remains that, like, even though Jeff Sessions is terrible, it would be even more terrible to fire Jeff Sessions for refusing to improperly interfere with an ongoing criminal investigation of Donald Trump's friends and associates. And, like, if Sessions is fired as part of a campaign of interference, it's not like you have to pretend that, like, you agree with Jeff Sessions about everything he's ever done in his career. But it's also entirely appropriate to sort of Put that aside for a moment and talk about the pressing issue. And I found it frustrating how much of the 2018 Comey conversation has come to be about the summer and fall of 2016, which like is an important moment in history, but not really what's noteworthy here. Like we've had a lot of FBI directors who've made a lot of questionable calls about a lot of different things over the years, in my opinion. But it is, it's unrealistic to expect that we will ever have an FBI director who never makes a bad decision on any topic. It is entirely realistic to expect that we have an FBI director who does not respond to presidential requests to block criminal investigations of his friends and associates. And it's like not clear to me like what we have in Christopher Ray, right? Like the Senate, when they did the Ray hearings, I felt like there was a bipartisan just like suspension of disbelief. Like I don't mean anything against Christopher Ray, but all I know about Christopher Ray, the most damning thing imaginable that you could say about anyone is that Donald Trump picked him for the job. Like Ray he, did stand up in, in subsequent oversight hearings. He has stood up against the kind of casual smearing of FBI agents. Uh, he hasn't engaged in specific defense of, say, you know, Andrew McCabe. But he's been, I think, a little bit more vocal as he's been in the job, which I think gets to one of the big questions is here is like, is there something unique about the FBI? Right. Right. Robert Mueller is a former FBI head who's now taking part in an investigation under its aegis. Andrew McCabe, career FBI dude. You know, James Comey, not a career FBI dude, but had been in the role for several years. And the excerpts of the book that have been made public makes it clear that he thinks of the FBI as a kind of brotherhood in which, like, it's very important that he not cut in line in the FBI cafeteria because he's not above anybody else. That, like, it's a group of men and women of honor. And so I think that one of the questions that we have to to think about here is like, 
Rod Rosenstein was seen as a moral and upstanding dude, exactly the kind of person who wouldn't let Donald Trump push him around. Without knowing a ton about the circumstances under which James Comey was fired, we know that Rod Rosenstein wrote a memo recommending that James Comey be fired for being too tough on Hillary Clinton in 2016 and was subsequently fired by a man who thinks that James Comey was insufficiently tough on Hillary Clinton in 2016. Like, there's clearly a disconnect there. Clearly, Rod Rosenstein's memo does not appear to have been the most persuasive thing one year later is is kind of the weakest way to put that. Is there something about being a member of an agency that has, you know, a robust internal culture of law enforcement that has made it a little bit easier for individual people not to feel like the entire weight of the moral choice is bearing on them. Well, I think this is something you've written about, Dara, that I find pretty interesting about, like, what's different about the FBI and what role do they play in the Trump administration? Because you have plenty of arms of the federal government that could be in this, like, idea of deep state that runs through, like, the EPA, for example. Like, Scott Pruitt seems pretty obsessed with the idea of deep state, and he's making his, like, phone booth so people can't hear his conversations. There are plenty of federal agencies with lots of bureaucrats. But I was hoping you could talk a little bit about kind of, like, the work you've been doing about what makes the FBI different and why, like, if you're going to see an agency stand up to Trump, like, what's going to be different about the people who work there? Well, here, can we leave that as a, yeah. as a cliffhanger and take a break? Cliffhanger, I like it. The internet makes it easier in a lot of ways to post job listings and to apply for jobs, but that can create a problem. You just sort of put something up and you get flooded with applications and lots of them are bad. They're they're wildly unsuited, but it's it's so easy to hit send that that that's what happens and it's incredibly inefficient. So there's got to be a better way out there. And ZipRecruiter is designed by people who knew there was a smarter way and so they wanted to build a smarter way. They have a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. They learn exactly what you're looking for. They identify people with the right experience and invites them to apply for your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. 80% of employers who post a job in ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive so you never miss a great match. Uh, The right candidates are out there and ZipRecruiter is how you find them. So businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. And right now, Weeds listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. Absolutely no money. You just go to ZipRecruiter ZipRecruiter.com slash weeds. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash weeds. ZipRecruiter.com slash weeds. ZipRecruiter, it's the smartest way to hire. This is Yochi Driesen from Worldly, Fox's weekly podcast on the most important stories in the world. I've worked in journalism for nearly 20 years, and even I feel a bit overwhelmed by the news right now. There's President Trump and Vladimir Putin. I had a uh, call with President Putin and congratulated him on the victory, his electoral victory. And there's the North Korean nuclear crisis. North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. And then there's the Russia investigation. The Russians may have something on him personally uh, that they could always roll out and make his life more difficult. Want to make sense of all of this? Subscribe to Worldly. Run packing all of these stories and more every week. Come find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Okay, we're back, and now Dara's going to answer my question. So I think there are two threads here. One is that there's a general law enforcement, especially federal law enforcement orientation that we've talked about on the podcast before, 
with regards to the FBI toward, you know, following the letter of the law and getting the job done right. And the FBI has obviously not always lived up to this, to like to say the least. But even when it has engaged in behavior that that is serving its own political ends, it's doing so you know, with the self-image of we always get the job done in the proper procedure. We're the guys who are checking all the boxes. You know, it's worth done right or it's not worth doing at all. You know, it's a very law enforcement kind of setup, not in the kind of policing sense, but in the you only do the things that are going to be defendable in a court of law. You don't get any evidence that's going to get thrown out. It's the kind of by the book way that a prosecutor usually builds a case. It's a very prosecutorial kind of culture. Obviously, the FBI is like not the prosecuting arm of the federal government. Those are, you know, U.S. attorney's offices and main justice. But U.S. attorney's offices and main justice are led by presidential appointees. So there's always this tension between a U.S. attorney is being appointed to fulfill to a certain extent the administration's policy desires. Jeff Sessions just told all U.S. attorneys who have jurisdiction on the southern border that they have to prosecute every single illegal entry case that gets referred to them. That's a tension between the desires of a temporary political infrastructure and like what a prosecutor would independently think is the right thing to do that doesn't necessarily exist in an agency where you have a 10-year head who's who may not have been appointed by the current president. The other strain of this is kind of the independence of the FBI that that kind of 10-year situation uh, has kind of allowed to continue from the J. Edgar Hoover days, wherein the FBI really was a deep state that had absolutely no accountability to anybody up to and including the president and was in a position to intimidate people up to and including the president. That's not something that, you know, I, I think it's not super controversial to say that the FBI is not as bad as it was when J. Edgar Hoover was <laughs> running it. Um, but the idea that having an agency where there are a lot of career dudes where the head has a set term that's that's independent from most political appointments creates the idea that this is a guardian of some power that is insulated from the policy demands of the current administration. Yeah, I think it's it's important to point this out because one of the things that makes firing Comey such a such a watershed, right? And and that I think makes it conceivable that in a sense the FBI is now biased against Trump is that you know, the president has the authority to fire the head of the FBI, but it's an authority that has not been used, right? So Hoover was appointed. He was the first FBI director and he he held the job for 48 years, right, spanning across all kinds of administrations. And, you know, there's, there's all kinds of reporting on this that different presidents like considered firing him, but it was considered like too dangerous, right, in a, in a nefarious sense. So then after Hoover, they adopt the 10-year term rule. And the idea of that is to limit the duration of the FBI director, but it's still, it's 10 years, right? It's not four, it's not eight, it's not even five. So the idea is that an FBI director's term in office would span across presidential administrations. And so it's- Yeah, if you think about it, even like the head of the Federal Reserve doesn't get 10-year appointments. Right. So, so you come in as president and the FBI director 
will always be someone who somebody else appointed, and you just go along with that. Bill Clinton removed an FBI director very early in his term, but that was after inspector general's reports that had been initiated under his predecessor. This was basically it wasn't a process the Clinton administration started rolling, right? Because they didn't want the like political hot potato of dealing with the FBI even. So for Trump to fire Comey, although within his Constitutional authority is just a huge break with the, the norms of, of the government, comparable to, I think, the norms that exist around the military, where obviously President Trump is commander in chief of the United States military. If he wanted to fire General Dunford from his position as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he could do that, but it would be really weird, right? Like he has not removed any existing four star generals. They simply continue to rotate on their normal schedule. That's how all presidents do it virtually all of the time. And that's a sign of the institutional clout that those places have, right? Like nobody said that Trump fired Loretta Lynch as attorney general. It's just assumed that a new president puts in a new attorney general and it's assumed that a new president does not put on a new FBI director. And then you combine that with the fact that the FBI doesn't have other political appointees, right? As, as Dara was saying, the heads of the field offices are just all career FBI agents. The other high-ranking FBI executives are career FBI agents. And so it's a it's an institution that has a lot of practical autonomy from politics. And you know, there's a that's a mixed bag. I think it's important probably that a federal law enforcement agency not be under the direct political control of the president, but it would be mythologizing to say that that independence is used purely for good, right? right? Yeah. It's there's, there's, I think there's no workable there's no workable alternative to institutional independence. It seems to me because you know otherwise the president could just be. You couldn't have public integrity prosecutions working if the FBI wasn't in the hands of career people. Uh, but that independence itself is very prone to abuse. So I think that there is a tension that is always going to exist, and this is not unique to the FBI, between the job that civil servants think they're supposed to do that is obviously like expands their career, spans various presidential administrations, like a postal service worker doesn't like wake up, you know, the first day of a new administration and go, my job's going to be totally different now. And I'm totally cool with that. They have a certain self-concept of what it looks like to work where they work. The fact that the leadership of agencies, of departments is selected by a new person every four or eight years that like, you know, it is completely legitimate in a sense for Donald Trump to have come in and said, I won the election. The American people voted for my agenda. They want the federal government doing the things I want the federal government to do. Obviously, you know, the entire quarrel here is the extent to which that ends up like skirting the law. But like Matt was saying, nobody said it was a problem for like Obama to come in and say, you know, I want the federal government doing more aggressive civil rights enforcement and people voted for that. So I think that there is, even in the best of times, a kind of tension between how much does the daily job of a civil servant change because the distribu distribution of resources at the macro level is going to have to reflect a president's uh, you know, agenda. The other thing I think is important here is the insulation of the FBI isn't 
totally unique to the FBI. There is a certain extent to which, even though other DOJ officials are politically appointed, that it kind of carries over to them as well. And I think it's especially important to note that this week, given that attorneys from the Southern District of New York are currently in court trying to fight the president's lawyer uh, to turn over a bunch of documents that the president himself has, inter- has attempted to intercede, you know, and not and not be given. That's an interest that the kind of political appointment situation there is a little bit fraught because, of course, Donald Trump fired the former Southern District of New York attorney, Preet Bharara, after apparently promising him he wouldn't fire him. The current SDNY attorney isn't acting. You know, there are questions about how he should, you know, he apparently recused himself from this particular investigation. But there's clearly it's it's clearly not the case that everybody else at DOJ is totally cowed and only the FBI is standing up to him. But you know, I think that again, this is a factor of a kind of law enforcement prosecutorial culture that they were, you know, checking every box that they had to check and making sure that, you know, they had to go into Michael Cohn's office to get the documents they needed, that they didn't, they couldn't trust him to get them to just turn them over in subpoena. Like there's a dot your I's and cross your T's culture of prosecution that results from the judicial branch being able to say at any time, now nah, you did it wrong, that also, I think, serves as a certain insulation against political considerations. I think one question, though, like going forward is how the firing of James Comey and like the year we've had since affects that relationship and whether it becomes, because I think, you know, when things you guys both have been saying is that, you know, the reason you don't do that is mostly just about norms, that you have an FBI director when you come in, maybe you appoint one, maybe you're not even in office long enough to appoint an FBI director and you're never really involved with that um, with that position. And I guess one thing I'm curious about, like, whenever we see a successor to President Trump is how, is whether that norm erodes at some level, whether we see the FBI becoming more similar to other, you know, cabinet to cabinet positions where, of course, you're going to replace the EPA director and, of course, you're going to replace the HHS director because those are, you know, you have a legislative agenda you want to accomplish. And I I think it's, you know, I could see it going either way. You know, a new president saying, you know, I want to go back to how things were and, like, I'm going to respect the independence of this particular agency or saying, you know what, this is how things work now. And if Trump had this advantage, you know, this is going to be one of those positions that is appointed. And there's a lot of, you know, danger to a Hoover-esque character with too much independence that I want to protect the country against. Um, I don't know how it ends. I think it, it depends a little bit on who ends up next in the White House. But it it's an open question to me of whether this becomes a more acceptable option and a more, um, you know, something presidents feel comfortable with just as they do replacing a whole cabinet um, or if it, you know, goes back off the table once you see a different president coming into office. I mean, I think some of this ends up hinging on, you know, how things turn out for for Trump with this, right? I mean, like one reason people... I don't want to put this in, in an excessively disparaging way, but I mean, I think traditionally presidents would have feared screwing around with the FBI leadership precisely because it's the kind of thing that encourages FBI field offices and rank and file officers to take a much tougher look at you than they did previously. Um, but there's also a partisan asymmetry in this, right? Like, there's a reason why 
James Comey became FBI director in the first place. And it's that Barack Obama was looking for a Republican with law enforcement credentials who would be somehow acceptable to civil libertarians. And James Comey was one of a very small number of people who plausibly fit that bill. And the reason Obama wanted a Republican is like there's never been a Democratic FBI director because all Democrats have always felt like it is better to have my political enemy running the FBI but trying to do his job well and like keep everybody chill than to try to put a political ally of mine in charge of the FBI lest the FBI agents like viper's nests swarm all over me, right? And you, and you really saw this around sort of peak Black Lives Matter type stuff where the Obama administration is putting out one line, like the Justice Department is like trying to go in on police reform. And this is like a political commitment of the first black president and his Justice Department. And then you have James Comey, who's the head of, you know, what bills itself as the nation's premier law enforcement agency. And he is very much endorsing highly speculative Ferguson effect theories uh, that, that anti-police protests are, are leading to increasing crime and stuff like that. And, you know, if you had had some kind of liberal Democrat FBI director at the time, he would have stayed on message with stuff like that. But you might have had other stories like Washington Post stories about dozens of career FBI officials are concerned about how the Obama administration is destroying law enforcement in America. And that might have been even worse, right? Trump has relied on the fact that I think most rank and file FBI agents are, you know, they're white male cops who are predisposed to like Donald Trump. And like I don't I don't want to overgeneralize. There's only one person I know who's in the FBI. Um, but he has incredibly conflicted feelings about Donald Trump, who he wants to love and who he agrees with about everything. But he really, really resents that Donald Trump keeps screwing around with the FBI. And like I would say his dream is to be a foot soldier in Donald Trump's autocracy. Uh, but like Trump keeps screwing it up by messing around with the FBI. And a Democrat would just not be in that position. Like you would actually have to purge the entire ranks, whereas Trump's vision of, I think, like lightly decapitating the FBI and installing a new, more pro-Trump leadership is perfectly coherent. So we might want to take a break because I feel like I'm going to be launching into like a very <laughs> long explanation of why what you just said is not entirely the right way to look at things. Let's take a break. I've talked about Blue Bottle Coffee for you guys before, and here's the basic deal with Blue Bottle Coffee. This is coffee that is amazingly good. Uh, the first time I went to their shop out on the West Coast, my mind was blown by the number of people who were there waiting for this coffee. I was like, eh, who cares, you know, coffee. Uh, but then I had it. It's amazing flavor, amazing taste. And now you can get this in the convenience of your own home. The key thing is that they roast and ship coffee to your house within 48 hours of you placing your order. So you're getting really, really fresh beans. It makes such a big difference. You probably don't know. You probably almost never had really freshly roasted coffee beans in your life. That all stems from their insane dedication to the art of coffee. They scour the planet searching far and wide to build exclusive relationships with independent growers, and they source only the most delicious, sustainable coffee that's out there. They taste really good, and they taste really distinctive. So you take Blue Bottle Coffee's coffee match quiz, and you're going to find the perfect coffee just for you. So they've got everything from blends to espresso to single origins. They've really got it all. 
all. So they want you to try it out. If you hurry to bluebottlecoffee.com slash weeds, you can get $10 off your first coffee subscription. That's bluebottlecoffee.com slash weeds, bluebottlecoffee.com slash weeds. All right. Okay. Darius says my takes are bad. <laughs> no, I think I think that this is actually where it gets really, really helpful to think about this not in terms of the FBI qua FBI, but to think about it in terms of partisan feelings toward the rule of law. Um, for one thing, I, I, I would say that you know your friend in the FBI is probably an illustration of what I was talking about earlier about like the importance of having a robust institutional culture, right? Like. The fact that there is something that he thinks of as his job that is independent from what Donald Trump, you know, the dude he wants in office wants to do is like, you know, that he's still wrestling with that after Trump has been in office more than a year is an illustration of how deeply ingrained the idea is that, like, your job is not subject to political considerations. But I also think that, you know, with the the attacks on the FBI from the right are kind of part of. They're not limited to the FBI. It's the FBI plus Rosenstein plus, you know, to a certain extent, Sessions. Uh, It's rooted in the idea that the people people who are anything but fully supportive of Trump must be trying to undermine him, that it is all of government is a pure struggle for power. And by definition, if you're not doing everything you can to protect the president, that you must be against him. That's kind of motivating their attacks on the FBI. It's motivating their attacks on attacks on the kind of, you know, Southern District prosecutors. There have been a lot of extremely overheated takes about how dare Robert Mueller be, you know, expanding his investigation into things that weren't initially the focus of the investigation. How dare these people be trying to seize documents? You know, things that anyone who's followed uh, you know, courts or prosecutors or the federal government for years is going, yeah, this is literally how it works all the time. Like, yes, it's a fishing expedition. Welcome to the federal government. That's how they do things. Um, at the same time, there's kind of a, you know, a lot of concern on the left about the ways that Donald Trump is using, you know, is might be trying to influence the Justice Department that are, you know, reliant on this is entirely outside the norm, right? His use of pardons, for example. Uh, Last week, he pardoned Scooter Libby, and there was a lot of, you know, oh, this is totally, this is clearly an abuse of power. They didn't go through the office of the pardon attorney. Therefore, this is clearly illegitimate. This is clearly a signal that, you know, people who lie to protect the president are going to get pardoned in the future. I think we can't speak to the last one of those because we don't know what was in Donald Trump's head. And it's also entirely plausible that new White House appointee John Bolton, who was an ally of Scooter Libby's from long back, may have had a role in this. But, you know, the fact that he hasn't gone through the office of the pardon attorney for this is not it's not typical, but it's not alarming. The pardon power is a very like constitutionally broad power. And, you know, there's, a, I think, a temptation to, on the left, to see anything that Trump does that helps Trump as something that must be an abrogation of the rule of law, you know, not not to like paint a false equivalency, but I think that you know the the definitions of the rule of law that people are operating from tend to be. I expect that my team will come out ahead in the end. When they suffer a setback, I am going to ask questions about whether this is an abrogation of the rule of law or whether people are relying on the letter of the law too much and kind of disavowing its spirit. And I think that that is frustrating in the short term 
But in the long term, it actually might be a little bit helpful because when you see people who are suspicious of, you know, law enforcement agents because their side doesn't always win, but they're on both sides, there's, I think, that kind of, there's kind of a Fed 10 thing here, right? It kind of evens out in the wash because you have different factions on different sides complaining about things instead of there being an overwhelming idea of, okay, so we get rid of this, you know, rule of law robustness concept. We replace it with something else. The something else is like TBD. So, you know, I think Sarah's concern about the politicization of the FBI is totally valid. Um, I definitely am not going to bet against the kind of agglomeration of any previously apolitical, quote unquote, entity into politics. Uh, I think that we've seen in the last couple of weeks with the like teacher strikes that laws that treat teachers as apolitical agents end up being, you know, non-sustainable and bad for them. But I do think that there's something to be said for the idea that the rule of law in practice isn't necessarily a strict, like, everybody, we know exactly what the right thing is going to be at any given time, but something that can be used so that both sides can agree that the federal government is not just a naked series of power grabs. Well, I think the rule of law, it's also something that's, like, constantly being interpreted by the people implementing the law, right? Like, if especially yes. if you look outside of the FBI, Congress passes a bunch of laws and then they turn it over to regulators who essentially— Write the rules. And this is a little bit separate, but there is like a lot of space left to interpret like what those rules mean. And like you see this in the EPA, you see this in HHS, you know, you you can have the exact same law be interpreted quite differently by people coming at it from different angles. I obviously I cover other parts of the government more than I cover the FBI, but I think one of the things that's notable when you look at the federal bureaucracy is a lot of it does depend on like the people interpreting like what it is that rule of law means, that there is no clear – there are some guidelines. And I think like if you talk to someone like James Comey, he would have a very clear sense of like what he felt like the rule of law meant to him. But I don't know that it's super black and and white. I think it's something that leaves a lot of space for interpretation by the people actually in enforcing the rule of law. And like you see that – all across federal government, like year after year, that it's a lot of it is left up to the people who are who are given the rules and charged with enforcing them. What I think, though, is important here is not just the question of of the rule of law or not, but of institutions and their autonomy or not, and their their power or not. I, I thought. Some of the most interesting stuff in Comey's interview with George Stephanopoulos, I thought, ended up on the on the cutting room floor and is only in the, the full-length transcript. And it's where Comey is not talking about either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, but just some of the other noteworthy things he's been involved with. And he talks about, for example, when he was U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York and he prosecuted Martha Stewart. And this was one of these cases where Martha Stewart came under investigation by the SEC for insider trading. Um, and ultimately, she was not charged with insider trading violations, but she was prosecuted for making false statements to federal investigators, um, which is like a really powerful tool in the federal investigators' tool chest. And it's why 
defense attorneys will tell you, like, you should just not speak to the FBI ever about anything. Uh, because if they want to try to trip you up, like, they might well do it. And Comey's talking about why he brought this case against Martha Stewart because he says, he's like, I knew a lot of people were going to criticize me. I knew it was going to, you know, she's rich, so it was going to take a lot of time and resources. And he explains it and he talks about how, well, there was this black minister who he prosecuted on a false statements charge years earlier in Richmond. And he was like telling the guys, like, I really don't want to, you know, bring a case against you, but like if you lie, we're going to have to. And he says it's like, you know, nobody knows that guy's name, but we brought the charges against him. So like we have to do the same against Martha Stewart, even though she's a rich celebrity. And it's a very James Comey moment, right? Mm. It's like the good of James Comey, right? It's like, there's this commitment to principle, right? Which is like you bring these false statement claims and it doesn't matter if it's a waste of resources and it doesn't matter if she's rich and famous. Um, then the other view is like, well, okay, but why did you charge this minister in Richmond, right? Like, like what are you doing here? But obviously from the standpoint of not just an FBI director but of a U.S. attorney and a career prosecutor mm -hmm. there, that power is just really useful. And now he says that this false statements charge, that its existence is integral to the rule of law in the United States, which I don't think is true at all. What it is integral to is the power and authority of U.S. attorney's offices and federal law enforcement agencies, right? If you took that charge out of the U.S. code, like the rule of law would still exist in the United States, but federal law enforcement would be much less powerful, much less potent, and the threat of being under investigation would be much less, less fearful. I will say this is the kind of thing like, I do not have a considered view on this. I just – I know that there are credible people who feel that this charge should be taken away. I, I don't really know. But it's not a dispute about whether the rule of law – Comey frames it as a question of whether we have the rule of law or not. But that's not what it is. It's about the, the power, prestige, authority of these institutions. And in the particular moment of the Trump era – it is healthy that career bureaucrats want to assert the power of the institutions that they serve in, whether or not it's true in a global sense, I think. That's fair. I mean, I also think that as while I agree with you on the false statements thing, and I would actually go even further and say insofar as false statements charges are usually lodged or are often lodged as a substitute for we, you know, for having enough evidence to charge you with the crime that was initially under investigation. Like that seems like a case of the FBI, you know, or federal prosecutors not doing the thing that they, you know, not treating people completely equally, but saying, well, we had you under investigation. We've already decided you're a bad dude. We might as well haul you in on what we have. Um, but I do think that, you know, the consistency that Comey is talking about really is fundamental to the rule of law. And like in law and economics, the, you know, kind of fundamental principle is that if you're going to have a successful market economy, if you're going to have a well-ordered civil society, you need to have a certain amount of confidence that the, you know, laws are going to be followed in a consistent way every time. You can't, you know, always be worried that if you do something, it will suddenly you know, bring the entire force of the state raining down upon you, whereas if some other dude does it, that won't be a problem for him. So, you know, it's kind of a reinvention of the rule of law, rule of men concept. But 
it kind of states a particular virtue that you want to get out of it. That, I think, is very important to the way people live their lives. But I also think that that can kind of the kind of, you know, if you think about this in terms of like con law, the left critique of like originalism or anything like that is that there are context and power dynamics and a black minister in Richmond is not in fact the same as Martha Stewart and treating them both as the same entity for legal purposes is going to obscure more than it reveals and harm more than it benefits. And that's obviously like a something that is worth considering, you know, as something that might affect prosecutors implicitly or explicitly in the context of structural inequalities. But the idea that you know, the rule of law doesn't particularly care about what you do. It cares about how you do it. And, you know, it doesn't particularly require you to be filing false statements charges. But if you file them, you're going to have to file them for somebody, somebody, someone somebody has never heard of, just as you do for someone more powerful. The way that Comey's talking about that is we could have dismissed the charge against the more powerful person. And right. we didn't because the rule of law applies not just to those who have the least power. And I think that that's the sense in which it's very important in the Trump era in which, you know, Donald Trump genuinely appears to feel that because he runs the federal government, it should not do the things he doesn't want it to do. And the rule of law is a check against that kind of entitlement. Right. Although, I mean, you know, with, we, I think we, we've talked about Weber before on this podcast. Um, but so I mean, my first Weber podcast. Oh, yeah. No, you should be in the studio with Matt and me more often. It all comes back to Weber. <laughs> when you think about Trump and pardons, right? I mean, this is you have a, a there's there's a bureaucratic rationalist model of governance. And then Donald Trump is a believer in personalized charismatic leadership. And the pardon power is this like lurking constitutional lacuna that was written in. I don't know why, but it seems like they copied and pasted it from the British monarchical system, right? It's a it's a very uh personalized uh provision, right? It's it's like the president, through his divine right as quasi-king, can bestow mercy upon you. And the American system has like really tried to tame this power because it's crazy. And like, why is there an office of a pardon attorney, right? And it's because America has built a bureaucratic rationalist political system. And so it seems like there should be a bureaucratic process for doing things. There is an office of a pardon attorney. They have a whole process. Like it's like anything to do with the government. It's like an annoying slog. There's time you file the paperwork. There's people who are in charge of it. There are standards. But like it's all made up. Like what the Constitution says is you just pardon whoever you want whenever you want. And and the pardon power has been used in irregular ways and in somewhat abusive ways before. I think uh, Bill Clinton pardoning uh, Mark Rich is the sort of clearest example of, of something that, that looked abusive to me. But Bill Clinton still followed the formalisms, right? Like Denise Rich submitted the application. She had attorneys. This whole thing was done. The casualness with which Trump tosses off the pardons of, of people like Joe Arpaio and, and Scooter Libby is disturbing to people who are versed in the American system because it is so personalized. It's this, it's this like 18th century 
demon like lurking in the back of the machinery of government just leaping out front where the president just says things and then they go happen. And you see the government mostly doesn't work this way. Like there was a fascinating Washington Post story where the president, who he's the president, he says, I want American troops out of Syria within 48 hours, which, you know, that's a legal order, right? I don't think anybody disputes the president's authority to order something like that. And the military just doesn't do it. Right. And and they say and then they like leak to the Washington Post, like, can you believe this dipshit president <laughs> told us to do this? And like it's embarrassing for him. And that's because like there is a way that things work, right? And Trump rebels against making things work that way. And it's like a real enduring tension that sometimes maps onto questions about the rule of law, sometimes doesn't. Like mm-hmm. on the pardons, like he is in the right and everybody who's saying, no, 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 you have to use the process is – like there's no legal defense of that argument. It's just that like you're supposed to use a process because we feel better about the idea that governance is bound up in process even when that isn't what the constitution says. Well, that's actually reminding me of like the the old Obama era defense of drone strikes that like there is due process because there is a process that we do. Not that that was right. ever actually said by anyone in government. It's kind of like a, I can see Russia from my house sort of thing, but it really was the way they appeared to approach how they were targeting drone Wait, strikes. Wait, he wanted to be clear that he wasn't just sitting there right. being like shoot him shoot them <laughs> that there was a process yeah th- th- this is i this is totally enlightening i feel like we should we should move on to norway from here because matt has successfully identified the 18th century demon at the heart of the trump administration <laughs> all right should we do the let's okay. take a break and then we'll do our paper yep. A lot of people out there, and certainly I am one of these people, just don't really enjoy shopping for clothes. Don't love the experience. Don't love the whole process. But it's still nice to have clothes that look good and that fit your style. And Stitch Fix is the answer to that. You tell Stitch Fix your sizes. You give them some kind of pointers about your favorite types of clothes, how much money you want to spend. And and then they get a personal stylist and they pick out a bunch of stuff for you that they think that you are going to like and that meets your criteria. It comes to your house. You try it on and then you keep what you like. It's incredibly easy. You get a really good hit rate. You get the convenience of your own home. You answer some really basic questions. Then they hook you up with a personal stylist who springs into action and is going to hand select five brand new things just for you. It sounds like something like incredibly expensive, a personal stylist, but their fee is only $25 and it's waived if you keep all five items. And if you don't, you only pay for what you keep. If you don't like something, if you need another size, you just send the items back. Shipping is free both ways, so there's no risks there. It's like all the rewards of a really intensive shopping experience without the work and without the hassle. So you get your fix whenever you want, or you can sign up to receive scheduled shipment. The choice is absolutely yours. If you hurry to stitchfix.com slash weeds, you can get started right now. So you keep all five items in your box, and you get 25% off your entire purchase. That's stitchfix.com slash weeds, stitchfix.com slash weeds. All right, this is a hot one. Does integration change gender attitudes? The effect of randomly assigning women to traditionally male teams. Uh, it comes to us from Gordon Dahl, Andreas Katsadam, and Don Alaf Ruth. And um, so they're, they're looking at Norway has uh, conscription for its military, conscription only of men. Women can also serve in the military on a volunteer basis, but as you would expect, both from, you know, 
under a system like that, you end up with a very, very overwhelmingly male military. Um, so they worked with a, a Norwegian Defense Institute to conduct a sort of field experiment and see what would happen if you created uh, boot camp teams, right? They do eight-week boot camp training when you're inducted. And if they assigned women to your boot camp team so that you would be getting your training in a sort of gender-equalized uh, environment versus the normal environment where you have an all-male team. So they did it. It's eight weeks of, of treatment, which is you know not that much in the grand scheme of things. And then they surveyed people about their attitudes, and they found you know a fourteen percent increase in the amount of men who say that mixed gender teams perform well. Um, changes in people's attitudes toward you know gender normative behavior, um, but then no change in attitudes toward gender and leadership. Right in which. Uh, but they still – the boot camps were still all led by men, right? So they integrated at the rank and file level but not at the leader level and they found a change in attitudes about participating in mixed gender teams uh, but no change in attitudes about uh, women in, in leadership roles. You know, and they – as they say, this is a sort of – adjacent to a lot of contact hypothesis literature about race and ethnicity, but gender is a different case for that sort of thing because lots of people live in racially or ethnically segregated neighborhoods. Uh, almost everybody lives in a racially segregated household, um, but nobody lives – there's no such thing as a gender segregated neighborhood. So it's a different kind of Contact, right? It's to say not like, well, you know some women, which everybody does, but like you specifically work with women, which is important because even as, you know, we now have a lot of women participating in in, in full-time uh, market work, occupations still are very gendered, right? Like when you go to uh, Jose's preschool, it's like almost all the teachers are, are women. If uh, you look at a fire department, like almost all the fire. Well, this was like a men. super intensive integration. So they're not just working together. They're also living together. So we're talking about spending all of their time like living with – and I think in a way that is different than like um, – the households most of us live in with the other gender where we select a partner and decide to live with them and possibly have children where this is kind of women you've never met before and men who've never met before living together for a pretty intensive eight-week period. Um, in a way, the findings of this, they don't surprise – I think they would have surprised me a few years ago before I did a bunch of reading on the roles of representation and women in kind of um, like contact theory – about gender, but you know, after going through that, and we've talked about this on previous episodes, there's a pretty robust body of research that suggests, like, being in the presence of women in certain roles will change attitudes about those people. I think it's really interesting that they didn't find any changes in leadership, which suggests, you know, a very literal sense of this contact theory that it was something about seeing women in the specific roles that led to the change. If you didn't have any women in leadership roles and you weren't going to see a change. It wasn't like the people in the mixed um, gender units were envisioning the women they were working with as leaders. I guess the question I have, and this isn't like really a knock on the study, it's just more of like, what does this tell us writ large? You know, we're probably, most of us are going to work in jobs where we spend, where people have a life outside of our jobs. And that's definitely not the case here. We're talking about people who are in an intensive eight-week boot camp. Everyone is doing boot camp, which is pretty different than most of the workplaces most of us are in where, you know, we go to work for eight hours, we leave, you know, we're not intensely 
around our colleagues. Um, and so I'm curious, like, how, like, what else, what this tells us writ large and, like, how you would, how you would take this um, experiment. I'd almost be more interested in seeing kind of research where people aren't aren't forced to live together, where maybe they're just doing their daily training activities. And, like, if you see similar shifts in attitude or if there's something about this, like, super intensive experience that is kind of driving the, the change in views. I think that's a really good point because the fact of the matter is that the contact hypothesis is not, like, unequivocally validated by experiments, right? For every study that purports to show that there's an improvement in attitudes with greater diversity, there's a study that shows that, like, if you put white people on a bus with non-white people, they'll freak out about, you know, America becoming a non-white nation. And, you know, the, the social dynamics that you guys have identified, we don't know for sure, but certainly seem to be part of that, right? That just, like, seeing people around you doesn't trigger the same kind of love for all humanity that having to work and live with them does. Um, but this is why kind of I, I, I get frustrated with the the thickness of the data in this paper. Like, I I think that, you know, we, we should be clear about what this paper actually asked. It asked people to, on a seven-point scale, agree or disagree with the statement that uh, six that single gender units perform better. Uh, they ask people to agree, strongly agree, you know, agree, strongly disagree, disagree with it being important that labor be shared equally within the household. And they ask them to rate themselves on the statement, I am feminine. Um, which is a very weird way to think about gender dynamics. Maybe this made more sense in the original Norwegian. I'm not sure. Um, but that's not a lot to judge changes in attitudes. And it's definitely not enough to judge changes in behavior. The contact hypothesis usually talks about like, well, if in behavior you're integrated with these people, your attitudes will change. But like in real life, it's not like, oh, I am now removing to the realm of attitudes. You're also continuing to, you know, interact with people. And we've seen in household division studies that the men who consider themselves gender egalitarians aren't actually gender egalitarian. Like, they may say it's important to do an equal share of the housework. They may think they do an equal share of the housework, but they totally don't. And so I would really, in addition to sharing Sarah's frustration with, like, the limited application of this study, I think it's worth asking, just because these dudes say that this is, are more likely to say that it's important, like, are they actually going home or settling down with a woman in a few years and you know, making sure that an equal amount of housework is done, or are they just kind of the stereotypical feminist dude saying, oh, I served with women in the military. Of course I love, you know, I think women are great. I think it's really important to be egalitarian and then sitting on the couch while their wives fold all the laundry. There's also just an obvious question about the durability of this kind of effect, right? I mean, you know, a a boot camp by design, right, is a very intensive kind of experience, right, just from a military training standpoint. And an interesting question is, like, how much does any of that sort of stick with you, right? It's telling and interesting from a purely military standpoint, right, that if you decide as a military organization that, like, one of your goals is to promote a more gender egalitarian attitude toward military service, that incorporating this kind of gender integration into the training seems to work on that. Because they also measured um, the soldiers' attitudes toward military service, right? And they they remained like equally bullish on it, but they now 
thought that gender-integrated military units were a good idea, right? So if you are a military and you have a political mandate to promote more gender integration into the actual military service and you're trying to say, okay, how are we going to make this work, right? Which is a logistical question. I think there's pretty good evidence here that building a lot of gender integration into your basic training program is a good way to make that work, right? And I think that's a pressing issue in Norway, which is actually changing how its conscription system works and they're going to have more women soldiers, right? And so you need to, you need to think about how you want to do that, right? A separate question is, what can we infer from this about society? And it seems like maybe not that much, right? Um, it's not clear to me that, as Dara was saying, is the unequal gender division of household labor driven by people saying explicitly, I think that the division of labor should be unequal, or is it driven by something else, right? And I. I'm deeply skeptical that it's driven by like an explicit stated preference for inequality as the preferred outcome. Um, and, and I think that um, it, it's, a, it's an odd variable to sort of focus on in, in that regard. It's also really interesting though that it doesn't change leadership attitudes, right? Because that's a very sort of live issue in society, right? That as you've seen, there's a lot of kind of um, – Hannah Rosen, like end of men type takes and and focus on how at the lower ends in contemporary American society, men are often really struggling and women are in some ways doing better. But then at the same time, like, you know, CEOs, Congress, governorships remain very, very, very overwhelmingly male. And, you know, I think you see like a, a range of evidence of which this is part that is sort of bottom up efforts in those regards don't don't change anything. I think that the other thing that it's really important to note about, you know, the what you were just saying about the American context is you can't have a you can't just say, okay, now we're doing gender egalitarianism, right? The reasons that men are struggling it, you know, in some respects in America have everything to do with race and class, in particular, the like overcriminalization of African American men and to a certain extent Latino men, uh, you know, leaving a lot of women in those communities in the position of choosing to live on their own or to settle down with someone who like has a criminal record and could be targeted by the police and the criminal justice system again or you know with somebody who even if they don't have a criminal record is going to be under continued suspicion um I think that that's a good argument for not thinking about kind of the race and gender elements of the contact hypothesis as being separate, right? Like if people have stereotypes about how black men are expected to behave that do not necessarily pose the same problems for black women and you promote a bunch of black women and, you know, and people are white people are totally fine with that you haven't really solved your problem and you've solved neither your race problem nor your gender problem so maybe you know this is the, i'm now thinking that this is an even less useful study for america um, because i do think that you can't talk about what people's actual behaviors are if you're saying well as long as you have some women you're going to be doing okay on you know your views on society so I'll, I share all the skepticism, but I'll, I'll offer like a, a defense of this paper and why I think it is still useful. And I think the thing that you know struck jump out jumped out at me is that um, views are malleable, and I thought that is like the thing I would take away from this is that like 
yes, we're seeing it in a limited, you know, situation. And there's all these, you know, obviously a study of an eight-week Norwegian boot camp does not give us like the final solution for how to create gender equity across the world. But I think the thing that is notable about this study, like why it is worth talking about, is that it suggests that views on things that are pretty entrenched, you know, that people coming into this boot camp have spent probably their entire life, like they are in Norway, so probably like a more equitable society, but still like a, a place where, for example, women are, you know, public opinion polls show, and I just know because I've been looking into this, that most people think women with young kids shouldn't work full time, for example, that they're coming out of a society that still has certain views about how the roles of men and women are different. I do think it is notable and encouraging to see that those views are malleable in in, an, in a short period of time, too. We're talking about like an eight-week, albeit intensive, um, intensive situation that in two months you can see significant shifts in how people think about uh, gender and how people think about what women can and can't do. So for all this study's limits, I think it is like a somewhat optimistic take on kind of how progress could be made. Another great way to make progress is by recommending The Weeds to your friends, writing us on iTunes, checking out other Vox Media Podcast Network shows. Always a big fun. Uh, joining The Weeds Facebook group, where we can have uh, discussions about this and many other aspects of Norwegian military policy. Uh, you know, Vikings, whatever you like. Uh, all, all that good stuff is there. So with that, I'd like to thank our engineer, Griffin Tanner. I uh, thank our, our producer, Bridget Armstrong, and wish her a happy birthday. Happy birthday, Bridget. Happy birthday, Bridget. <laughs> Woo! Um, and a, a happy uh, rebirth to uh, the, the podcast studio. Uh, which is which is back. It's it's really glorious. We had zero stops for passing helicopters today, which was fantastic. Um, and the weeds will be back on Friday.